Hi, everybody. Welcome to the October 23rd, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Election Day is only 10 days away, folks. Here we come. Colorado is experiencing record-breaking turnout among early voters, with over 1 million ballots cast so far. Nearly a third of Colorado's eligible voters have already done so. Democrats still hold a votes cast advantage as we head into those last 10 days. And with Election Day quickly approaching, down-ticket races are rushing to win more votes. The last In the last two months, independent expenditure committees have poured almost $10 million into state legislative races, while ballot measures have spent more than $12 million in the first two weeks of October alone. Patty Calhoun from Westward, we're seeing uh, a really big surge, but at least the end is near. We're 10 days away. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel. What are your thoughts when we see kind of expenditures like this? Well, we see a lot of TV ads, as you've noted, and I can't wait for those to go away. You cannot believe how much money is getting poured into these campaigns to change. At this point, I'm not sure how many how many minds are going to be changed. But in a cash-strapped budget across the country, you wish the money were going somewhere better. It's not a surprise that Coloradans are voting early because it is easy in Colorado. Since we had the first all-mail ballot in 2014, it has gotten smoother and smoother. You can go to a vote center if you want to go in person. You can mail it by Monday if you want to mail it. There are drop boxes all over. We hope it goes half as smoothly in the rest of the country as it's probably going right now in Colorado. Next door rumors about lost ballots. Uh, To the contrary, Democrats are all are out early this year, and I think there's a very good reason which David will disagree with. It's 1:15. Women are out voting now because if they feel strongly about anything, it's Proposition 115 on the ballot. The other ballot, the other measures are a little different, but everyone in the country is feeling strong about one issue or another. It really depends on if they're willing to wait and see if their ballot might get caught up in a last-second crunch. Or if they're willing to wait and see if they're going to find out anything more revelatory about the campaign. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, we have a larger voter, voter turnout right now. Usually this early in the uh, results, we're seeing Republicans with the edge and then Democrats catch up as kind of the late ones to the party. It's reversed this year. Does that point to something going on with the Colorado mm-hmm. GOP? Um, I think it uh, points mainly to, well, yes, because the, the have, Colorado GOP's presidential candidate is Donald John Trump, and the biggest share of early voters are Democratic women. I think there are tons of them who have been waiting and waiting and waiting to finally do something to strike back at him, and they so they turn their ballots in quite early. Um, and Patty said the, the abortion ban on after 22 weeks of pregnancy uh, would be leading, and I'm, I'm sure the you know vast majority voted against that, uh, but my view is they've been thinking about how much they hate Donald Trump for over four years. And if they've been thinking about the this particular abortion issue, it's only been you know, for the past few weeks of the campaign. Um, the spending is crazy. When my dad was in the state, had 13 races for state house representatives, the three toughest were 76, 78, and 80 against a very good Republican named Paul Swalm in a district that was evenly balanced on party. They both campaigned super hard. My my dad won two out of three. Uh, And each side spent under $15,000 on those races. And now you're talking about sometimes a million dollars and frequently over hundreds of thousands getting into state legislative races. Most of it's spent by outside groups. And this is caused by Article 28 of our Constitution, which was a, is a failed 
uh, attempt at good government reform to limit campaign spending by reducing contributions to candidates to the lowest level uh, in, in the United States. And so instead of reported contributions going to candidates, you get unreported dark money uh, coming in and you, you, people don't know who's behind it. You'll never solve the problem with more restrictions. As you have, we have a $30 billion budget. If you have a bunch of cheese all over the floor, you're going to get mice. And no matter how much money you buy on mouse traps, with $30 billion of cheese, you're going to get a lot of mice uh, because it, it's a wise investment for tax consumers uh, to spend on getting their share of the $30 billion. Eric Sonneman, a columnist with Colorado Politics, also our in-house political analyst. We go to you next remotely. Eric, uh, Early voting is it's a headline, but I'm not sure if it tells us much, except that a, a third of our voters in Colorado are no longer uh, needing to pay attention to ads and things like that. Is there uh, something there that is noteworthy or do you think by the time we get to Election Day, it all it all evens out? No, I do think it is noteworthy, Dominic, for, uh, for, for a couple of reasons. One, as David and Patty have pointed out. Uh, there's a part of this electorate that is on fire and can't wait to vote and can't wait to turn out. The second noteworthy thing to me is that once your vote is cast, late breaking news no longer matters. You cannot change your mind. Uh, The cake, as we say, is largely baked. We're still putting some frosting on that cake, but the cake, as more and more of these ballots get cast, uh, the cake itself is baked. My favorite headline on last night's debate uh, was out of Politico this morning and was to the effect of no debate disaster, no national embarrassment, but also no one cares. And I think that was largely the score with the debate. Just look at the numbers. Um, on a national level, over 51 million Americans have already voted. In the Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump election four years ago, there was a total vote count of about 129 million. There was another five or six million for some third party candidates, but so call it 130 million, 135 million. That number probably goes up this year because again, people are on fire uh, about this election, but um, 51 million in the bank is just a massive number. The numbers in Colorado are very similar uh, in terms of the proportion that is already voted. So late breaking news, even if somebody gets a substantial advantage at the end, um, that tends to get muted. In terms of the down ballot races, real quickly, uh, yes, there's a ton of advertising. Advertising matters much, much more on those down ballot races. Ads between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, they don't matter quite so much because we all have so many cues about these two candidates that we respond to other cues. When you don't have cues, advertising matters very much. Uh, I can't turn on my TV without seeing ads about Kevin Priola, a state senator up in Adams County, one district out of a zillion in the metro area. And yet Democratic interest groups are, and I'm in my mind somewhat shamefully because I think the ads are grossly distorted, spending unbelievable amount of money trying to go after one state senator in one district in Adams County because it is a key district and they think they can pick it up. Penfield Tate, a longtime state lawmaker and currently attorney with Tate Law. Uh, Penfield, you have been part of these uh, local races that we're talking about. Uh, I don't think they probably, I don't think millions of dollars were spent in your state races, but maybe I'm wrong. You're a pretty effective fundraiser. What do you think about when you're seeing all these independent expenditures in state races? You know, I think a number of things have happened, Dominic. I think the part of the problem is Trump made such a big deal about um, 
calling into question the integrity of the voting process. I think that's part of what's driving people to vote early. Those who want to get rid of him don't want to run the risk of something crazy happening at the end. Those who support him want to make sure their vote gets counted so it's in early. Uh, the massive amount of spending, I agree with David. I, you know, Part of the problem I think Colorado has is we went so far with this good government push to reform how we fund campaigns that we took the money away from candidates and put it places where it's not reported, it's not recorded, it's not accountable. And, the, and, and even as a candidate, you get frustrated because there are all these resources out there. You cannot direct where they go because third party groups are, are, are driving that. So my hope is that one of the things we'll learn from this is the fact that we need to continue to push for publicly funded elections, which put a cap on how much money gets spent overall, but also will help regulate the process a little bit more. The last trend that I think is important here, and I think Eric touched on this, the early voting is key because I think it will begin to change how professional campaign operatives manage campaigns. Um, I think that we may find over time that there's less and less value of these late October surprises because if you know, uh, you think about it, we've got over a, a million votes cast now, but that's compared to the total universe of registered voters. And uh, assuming that the turnout's only about 60, 75 percent, it's easily close to half the votes have already been cast in Colorado. So money you're spending now, and I'm still seeing endorsements roll out and everything, what's well, too late? Um, too many people have voted. And so I think we're going to see a change in how campaigns are run on a moving forward basis because of how many people voted early this time. Earlier this year, two Colorado churches filed a lawsuit against the state of Colorado in opposition to the state's COVID safety restrictions, including mandatory masks and limited congregation size. This week, U.S. District Court Judge Daniel Domenico ruled in favor of the churches, stating that Colorado does not have the right to limit church capacities more than essential businesses, nor does it have the right to require the use of masks during religious practice. The state of Colorado is filing an appeal. David, we start with you on this one. We have the, the, the great benefit of two esteemed lawyers in the panel today. What's, uh, what are the important issues that we need to know about this legal decision? Well, Judge Dan Domenico is a former solicitor general for the state of Colorado, which means he was the one who was the, the lead in, in arguing, say, important constitutional cases in the federal courts or in, in the Colorado uh, Supreme Court. He's also a former adjunct law professor at, at Denver University where he taught constitutional law. So he, he's very well in, informed on, on these topics. And as, as, as his opinion says, the First Amendment doesn't require that preference be given to religion, but it absolutely forbids government discriminating against religion. So he says when there's a rules that say certain things that are deemed by the governor to be critical or essential are allowed to open with certain rules for spacing, like people have to stay six feet apart all the time. You can't say that a gym or a, uh, a meatpacking plant or a, a Walgreens or a elementary school are essential and say, open, and then so you can be open with the safety rules of six feet apart, but churches can't, even when they obey those exact same rules. You can't, just, you can't have a worse standard uh, for religion, um, according to the First Amendment. And I, I think he's, uh, Judge Domenico's right that the, the Constitution conclusively settles the question uh, that 
churches, synagogues, mosques, all houses of worship are critical and essential. And you can see that in a practical way now. How many people are dying from the lockdown, from loneliness, isolation, suicide, depression, alcoholism, drugs, all of that. Churches are the are a solution to that for many people. Many people need the community and that kind of escape from loneliness, so they certainly are critical for some people, life-saving, in fact. Eric, it was a big legal decision. You're not one of our esteemed lawyers, but you know how these things go with uh, uh, the entire state. It's, it's going to make some headlines, and it, uh, it makes sense about the uh, if it's going to be true for a Walgreens, true for somewhere else, but I could see uh, a couple different angles here. What do you see? Yeah, Dominic, I'm sandwiched here between uh, two excellent attorneys, David and Penn. I won't opine on the legal stuff. I will let that uh, rest with the two of them. Uh, Just quickly, uh, no one argues with the exercise of religion. And David does make a good point in his final point in terms of religion for many, many people being more important now than ever. No dispute there. But to me, this is less about the exercise of religion. It is more about public health. Uh, whether we're talking about masks, whether we're talking about social distancing, whatever the COVID response is, we've had public health orders in this country and public health regulations forever. And, you know, if there's an order or regulation that people who work in a restaurant kitchen have to wash their hands after using the the restroom facilities, no one considers that an infringement on their uh, personal liberty. If there's a regulation that chicken in a restaurant has to be cooked to a certain temperature, no one considers that as an infringement. These are logical public health steps. Somehow we have taken this COVID issue and put it into this political sphere and taken it out of the public health sphere. If we want to reopen this country, and everyone does, no matter what your politics, and everyone wants to get kids back into real school, not virtual school, and all the rest, but the answer is to follow public health guidelines as much as possible, as much as reasonable, and not to resist them. Penn, we've advertised quite a bit that you're our other esteemed lawyer in the panel. Uh, when you look at this as a case that the state is going to appeal, uh, what are their chances seeing what you've seen from the judgment from Judge Domenico? You know, I think the state has a reasonable chance on an appeal. I agree with David fundamentally that to the extent a bar is considered an essential business, uh, you can't make a credible argument that a church or a synagogue or a mosque is not. The question is going to be, are they all behaving and adhering to the same standards with regard to these public safety requirements that are necessary to keep us safe from one another, around one another, and to protect society so that eventually we can reopen safely. I think that's going to be the test. Clearly, I think the state will be able to show they have a a vested interest in and a right um, to deal with public safety issues and concerns. Uh, But the question is going to be how that is balanced. If you are maintaining and complying with those health and safety requirements in the exercise of the faith of your choice, that that is going to be the the test. One other ancillary issue that may come up, and I don't know if if it's going to come of issue in this case, is there's always been that tension, and you see it frequently with with families that don't like to get their kids vaccinated. Um, The question of whether um, families that do vaccinate and do observe some of those protocols, whether they have some rights to protect their kids and their families uh, with respect to those that don't um, vaccinate. 
Uh, Patty, clearly this is just going to be the tip of the iceberg when we talk about issues like this. What did you take away from the headlines about the, the legal decision? Well, the fact that churches have not been able to get together and they are considered less essential, say, than liquor stores and dispensaries is a pretty interesting legal argument. We also have to remember, though, that there's the issue of mask wearing. And I think when you look at the essential businesses, they are wearing masks unless you're, say, drinking a beer in one of those uh, alcoholic establishments. So I think that's going to be a tougher argument. Let us also hope that we are able to get together at all in public gatherings of more than one person, given how the COVID numbers are looking so bad right now in Colorado. So no matter where you are, observe those mask mandates. And I think David and I can agree on that one. You're here. As Colorado's record wildfire season continues into late October and closes Rocky Mountain National Park, policy and resource questions are likely on the horizon, including a possible push for climate change policies. I've often said in this show, you know, we don't talk about forest fires because who's pro-forest fire? But when it is a record-breaking season like this, we simply do not have a choice. Eric, we go to you first because you're one of the uh, thousands of Coloradans personally affected. You're talking to us remotely from Denver, but not from Tabernash, as you usually would in a day like this. Your thoughts on what might be some of the ramifications, policy-wise, out of this record-breaking wildfire season? Sure, Dominic. Yes, I am coming from Denver. Uh, as And it's not just thousands of people who are affected. It's tens and tens of thousands of people affected. We are more fortunate than most. We've been essentially living full-time up near Tabernash. We were in a pre-evacuation zone due to this East Troublesome fire, which is truly a behemoth. I can't begin to describe the for people who are not up there, the size of the, the smoke flumes that, that just cover the landscape from, uh, from one side to another. Uh, we were not in a mandatory evacuation zone, but we decided um, better to get out early, better to be safe than sorry, better to get out under our terms than on a moment's notice. So we did drive down the mountain uh, last night. In terms of the public policy implications, those are going to have to be played out. Um, I don't think there's any reasonable person who resists or even questions uh, sensible climate change regulation, action, funding, uh, shift to renewable resources over time, etc. The question is how much can a state or a locality, Denver itself has a climate change tax on the ballot. And I think it is an open question, given that it is global warming. It's called global warming because it is a global problem. What can a municipality or even what can a state do on its own besides being a good citizen and doing as much as possible to go along with the program? Penn, as a former state lawmaker, how influential do you think this wildfire season will be on the 2021 legislative session? Oh, I think it'll be hugely influential. Um, And I think Eric's right, but I would respectfully disagree. Um, In spite of these wildfires, in spite of the flooding and the hurricanes and everything we've seen, um, you cannot presume that everybody believes that climate change or global warming is real because there are still people who, believe it or not, fundamentally dispute that. So I I think it's going to be discussed and debated a lot in the legislature. My guess is, depending on the policy, there are enough votes in the two chambers to put something on the governor's desk, but, but it's going to be a bitter battle because there are still people who deny the science behind this, just as there are people who deny the science behind the whole COVID pandemic. Um, You would think we've seen enough and experienced enough by now to know better, 
particularly in Colorado with all the tragic loss um, we've seen, but uh, it's it's still going to be a, a tough slog. Patty, I mean, there's a couple different ways this can go, the legislative session, uh, but I think the fact of the matter, you're, we talked about before we roll tape, um, we're not hearing about towns people haven't been a part of. People, people are hearing about Granby and Grand Lake and Estes Park, where people are being evacuated, not that it's on the horizon, that they have to be evacuated. Is that going to mean uh, more policy action next year? Well, people are certainly going to be much more aware of it, and if you don't believe it, go read the book. Uh, Megafire from 2018, which is pretty impressive on how it lays out what's going on in the climate. If you're in Colorado, besides fleeing the fire, however, you wonder what you can do. And there's not going to be a lot of money to throw around next year to provide for more firefighting resources. So we're going to be, it's going to be very, very tricky. David, clearly we're prognosticating pretty far in the future, and we're in the middle, sadly, in late October, and that's the wildfire season. But what do you make of what we're seeing so far on its effect moving forward? Well, one of the things we need to do is pay attention to forestry science. And the the national forests in this country have been very badly mismanaged uh, for many, many decades. And we know for sure that the California fires uh, were at, at the least greatly aggravated by mismanagement and likely the same in Colorado. Fire occurs naturally in forests all the time often started by lightning. It burns for a while and then thins out some of the forest. When you have a policy of suppressing every small fire, then what you do is the the fuel load in the forest builds up so high that when a fire does finally happen, you get these enormous rapidly spreading fires. So even though nobody's pro-forest fire in general, I guess more more sensible management is to allow smaller natural fires to burn to some degree, and that avoids these giant catastrophe fires uh, that we end up getting later. Well, it is now time for our favorite part of the show, uh, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. We'll return to the great outdoors where David Lesh, who is a recreational entrepreneur gonzo guy, has already gone into Hanging Lake where he wasn't supposed to be and now is all over the media for using Maroon Bells as his outdoor, well, outhouse. So he has a date in court on October 30th. Let's take the outdoors seriously from forest fires to just cleaning up after yourself. Here, here, as a big fan of Maroon Lake, that, uh, that's a lot of ways to offend people, but come on, man. David. Noel Middle School in Denver is named for one of Denver's uh, great civil rights leaders. It is the highest performing middle school in the Denver public school system. It po- has a high poverty student population. Uh, its students are about more, over 90% black or Hispanic, and they're, they're doing great uh, with not only the test scores, but with individual counseling, lots of careful attention. And so they want to expand and create a high school uh, based on this very successful middle school model. And the Denver Public Schools, which is run for the benefit of the bureaucracy and the union and not for the benefit of students is delaying it, slow walking it, saying, oh, maybe you'll, you, you can open in 2022. But what about those eighth graders who are graduating this year and are ready to go to continue uh, the outstanding education provided by the Knoll system? Eric, we go to you for your disgrace of the week. Well, we obviously did not coordinate beforehand because my disgrace is exactly the same and almost word for word as what David just said. In term, I've commented before that Denver Public Schools 
has seemed lost for the last many, many months in terms of its COVID response and how, if at all, it's gonna get most of these schools reopened. But now very specifically, they had a proposal in front of them, a reasonable proposal from, I mean, as David pointed out, uh, Noel Middle School, DSST Noel, is the top performing middle school in the whole district. There was an implicit promise to those parents and those kids that they would be able to transition from eighth grade in middle school to ninth grade at a DSST Knoll High School. That promise has been broken. They have, and, and the district is not giving them any other reasonable quality alternative. Shame on, shame on DPS. Penn, we go to you for your disgrace of the week. Uh, it, it would be campaign advertisements generally. The, uh, I think they're probably more over the top this year than, than any cycle I can remember, um, clearly illustrating the need for us to change how we finance campaigns generally, as I talked about earlier. But I was really taken aback to see the campaign ad by Cory Garner invoking John F. Kennedy. That, that seemed to, to go a bit um, too far. Certainly reaching across the island in a unique way. With two minutes left, we have to say something nice. Patty. The cultural institutions in Colorado, which are suffering, like everyone else from COVID, but more than so many, and they're trying to keep us entertained, keep us educated. You have the Denver Film Festival, which has just started yesterday, has gone virtual, largely, except for a few outdoor things at Red Rocks doing their best. And the Denver Art Museum, we've got the great Frida Kahlo, Diego Rivero Mexican Modernism show opening on Sunday. Go see it in a safe way. David. All the serious, responsible citizens in Colorado who are taking the time to, to vote intelligently and accurately and, and know what they're doing. And some of those people have already voted. Uh, but if you haven't voted all, already, take the time to not only just maybe already know what you think about the president, take the time to learn about all of the issues on your ballot. There are plenty of voter guides around. The Independence Institute has one on state issues. Lots of other folks have, have their guides. Be a well-informed citizen so you, your vote can truly count in a good way. Eric. A very quick twofer. First, to all of those who've been evacuated by these fires, uh, we're fortunate among them. We have a house in Denver to come to. It was not a required evacuation on our part, but to all who are in the way of this mammoth fire and other fires around the state and to the firefighters and first responders who are fighting them. Secondly, Penfield Tate, my friend who will come next, his father, was the longtime former mayor of Boulder, Colorado, and the municipal building in Boulder is being named in honor of his father, Penfield Tate. Here, here. And Penn, you're up next. We're saying something nice. Well, Eric sort of stole it from me. I was going to thank the city of Boulder and thank them for acknowledging uh, my dad. Also, I want to give a shout out to the artist Detour or beautiful mural he painted of my dad on the side of the Boulder Public Library. It's wonderful. It's nice to see him remembered in that fashion. Here, here. Uh, and I want to give a quick shout out for the Highlands Ranch Herald. Just like uh, uh, David was talking about, they're part of the Colorado community media. They broke down all the different local issues and not just the, the large ones we talk about here, but county commissioner races and RTD director races. I had no excuse to be an uninformed voter. And thanks to this local paper, I was an informed voter. So thank you for everyone involved. And remember that you can watch Colorado Inside Out on YouTube and be sure to subscribe when you do so so that you can keep up to date with all of our latest shows. That is indeed all the time we have for this episode of Colorado. To inside out. So for everyone here at PBS 12, I'm Dominic Kazuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.